This is Ben Resnick, and I'm here to say we've got the greatest wrestlers in the AWA. But you're not here to listen to me mumble. Let's fill you in on the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Get on! From Television City in Hollywood, this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown Estate in front of a live studio audience. Featuring the greatest wrestling talent from the American Wrestling Association, the Major League of Professional Wrestling. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 63 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson, and today be taking my first look at the American Wrestling Association, AWA All-Star Wrestling. I, I just booked a trip to Minnesota, actually, coming this August. And this is merely a coincidence. I didn't choose it because I'm going to Minnesota on a baseball trip, which is completely inexplicable why I agreed to this, because when my friends and I drew up cities, I think Minnesota was 10th on my list, and I think I was just summarily ignored. Anyway... This is AWA All-Star Wrestling, so this is the local version of the AWA, not the ESPN version that people are probably more familiar with, from April 6th, 1986. So they're not quite in the great big pink room studio thing that they were, but things are starting to trend a little downward. I'll get into that in just a minute. First, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greetingsmallentown at gmail.com. Facebook.com slash Greetings from Allentown. On Twitter, give me a follow at GF Allentown Pod. I noticed that the follower number just ticked up a little bit since the last time I looked. So that's nice. I don't really pay too much attention to it. I maybe look at it like once a week when I happen to click on the profile or whatever when I'm switching accounts or however. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, got a lot of birthday greetings over the weekend, and I was wondering, how the hell does everybody know what my birthday is? And then I remembered, oh yeah, Facebook uh, kind of unveils that to the <laughs> to the world. Last Saturday, had a pretty good day, went up to New Hampshire for the New Hampshire Fisher Cats AA baseball game, mainly to see Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who did not disappoint getting on base his first three plate appearances. He's a real force of nature. But I have to admit, you know, some people ask me, like, what, what is New Hampshire like? And I tell you, I, I'm, in, I'm in, like, a WhatsApp chat with uh, a bunch of guys from Britain. They're like, what's New Hampshire like? I'm like, well, you know, the part by the border with Massachusetts is kind of Massachusetts Junior, but maybe a little bit more white trashy than the other side of the border. And then when you go up, sometimes you can get a lot of weirdness. And when I went to the bar in New Hampshire before the game in Manchester, it, it, people were kind of going full New Hampshire in there. And the entire workforce of a Harley Davidson store walked into the bar, and the owner was buying drinks for all of them. And they were definitely going full New Hampshire, like talking about 1.3 times louder than they probably should be. And just you know, kind of ridiculous. 
And even though there was a Boston Bruins playoff game going on at the time, it wasn't on any of the TVs in the bar. They had on college baseball for some reason. It was like LSU versus somebody. And on another TV, it was an old episode, obviously, of MASH. Now, every time I looked at my phone, the Bruins increased their lead. So I wasn't about to mess with the karma or whatever and have them change the channel. But I was just cracking up. Why would you have MASH on in a bar on mute? I don't, And it didn't even have the closed captioning. It didn't really serve any purpose. I did kind of want to, because the Bruins have two guys named Nash on their team. I wanted to be wise with the bartender and ask, to change the TV from MASH to NASH, but I don't think they would have gotten it because they clearly don't care about hockey. (laughs) Anyway, so good times up there, and thank you for all the well wishes on the last birthday that's probably worth celebrating in terms of uh, what my age is. The, 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 The first number will be changing next year, so I'd just like to forget about that. Now, when I started this podcast... Somebody had asked me, how many episodes do you plan to do of this? And I said, I don't know. I would like to get to at least 63. Now, that's a really weird number. Why Why would I say 63? You might think, well, you just got through saying how big of a hockey fan of the Bruins you are. Brad Marchand wears 63. Is it because of Brad Marchand? No. Well, I enjoy Marchand's propensity to lick his opponents, literally, as happened in a recent Bruins game to much controversy. It has to do with something else. Other podcasts that I've enjoyed over the years. I talk about wrestling podcasts that I've really liked. The Titans of Wrestling, where the big boys play, long-running ones, our vantage point, the wrestling podcast about nothing that I talk about on a weekly basis, all the great podcasts on the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. And, oh boy, I forgot to plug the placetobenation.com slash Amazon for all your Amazon purchases. I have to buy more coffee again soon, so that's on the docket for me. So why episode 63 is important to me is I listen to a lot of pom- comedy podcasts. I've, I, I'm really more of a consumer of podcasts than a producer of one. I mean, I was listening to them virtually nonstop from about the point that I first got an iPod in or late 2007, early 2008. And back then, there really wasn't as much from a podcast perspective that I was subscribing to, like the Bill Simmons podcast until it basically turned into basketball and, you know, self-pleasuring about stupid pop culture stuff that I don't care about. And Adam Carolla's podcast is, you know, one that I've always enjoyed, although, you know, I had to check out on that for a while when he got a little too political, in my opinion, for quite a while and just kind of became repetitive and annoying. But on Corolla's little network or universe over there, there was a podcast called Daves of Thunder that aired in 2010 and bled a little into 2011 with Dave Damashek, who is now a podcaster on NFL.com and has had that podcast going for like seven years. And David Feeney was his co-host. The the name of the show, of course, is a play on their first names. And that's my favorite show ever because I think I've done 11 or 12 laps through the 63 episodes on that show. And they've done so many, they did so many funny bits. And it relates to this show 
and it, it kind of makes me wonder if there's any crossover between whatever my audience is and anybody who ever listened to that show. But if you did listen to Days of Thunder or if you ever have listened to it, you you probably would notice that I, fit, I cram in allusions to that show in almost every episode. The Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Obviously, that's a TV trope. But they started doing that on their podcast very late in their run, probably about the last 15 or 20 episodes, and I kind of remembered that and wanted to incorporate it. Their episodes ended with that Yub Nub song from Star Wars that I played at the top of the show. So really, I, I just kind of want to point that out, that it's certainly one of my favorites. They incorporated music to great effect from... The fans of the show would submit parody songs and whatnot that were hilarious. It's not really something that would work as much in a wrestling context per se, although I have submitted a parody song to a podcast before. Maybe I'll get into that another time. So, yeah, I throw something from that podcast into just about every episode I do. So if there's any crossover, great. And if not, well, you know, nothing ventured, nothing lost. So AWA All-Star Wrestling. April 6, 1986. This is actually the last vestiges of Pro Wrestling USA, that alliance between the NWA and the AWA that always kind of struck me as weird because the AWA itself had struck away from the NWA. It was mainly Jim Crockett promotions by that point. And they team up late in 1984 to try and fight the tide of the World Wrestling Federation going national with you know a little bit of star power early on some of the early pro wrestling usa shows i think are on youtube starting in around october of 1984 and they're rather interesting i particularly love the one from october 13th 1984 because jack reynolds was hosting (laughs) old friend of greetings from allentown hosting the pro wrestling usa show and that same week he was hosting maple leaf wrestling on wwf television So I don't know if it was Vince buying off Jack Reynolds to get him away from Pro Wrestling USA. He doesn't seem like much of an announcer to like, oh, we have to we have to get we have to get Jack Reynolds, okay, or else Pro Wrestling USA is just gonna blow right past us. I really feel like that wasn't necessary. But as all wrestling alliances like WWF's working agreement with New Japan in the 80s and just about every working agreement in all of history it broke down after a while shortly after this show the last joint show or quote-unquote pro wrestling USA show would be April 28th hey that's my birthday 1986 in the Meadowlands in New Jersey and there's going to be a lot of promos for that upcoming show and interestingly a lot of those interviews would be with stars from Jim Crockett Promotions. So kind of a crossover show here today, but all of the in-ring action is from the AWA. And the way I think of that promotion, a lot of people just look at it from a very simplistic perspective and say, oh, Hogan left at the end of 83 and then they died slowly thereafter. It's not really the case. I would tend to think though, that their best period is that 81 to 83 when Hogan is there, star power on the babyface side that isn't stodgy Vern Gagne, who I'm not really a fan of, not just because I find his style to be rather boring, 
but also because, you know, I, I just never really liked his in-ring work going back. Maybe I'm just not watching the right stuff or the right Vern Gagne matches. So Hogan's there, 81-83, but they're actually, they still maintain some momentum, maybe declining a little bit, but they're pretty good through much of 1984. Then when Bobby Heenan leaves in September, that's a huge blow because having Heenan there makes all the heels that are associated with him stronger. So he he leaves for the WWF. That's kind of, you know, a zero-sum thing where WWF gets a huge gain out of that and the AWA, a monstrous loss. But they still stayed fine through 1985, drew over 20,000 to the Superclass show at Comiskey Park. Things started to decline at a little bit faster rate, at least from a business perspective, because 1986, where we are here, is one of the better in-ring years for the AWA. The very end of the year, you have the famous 60-minute draw between Kurt Henning, who really came into his own as a professional wrestler in 1986, Henning and Bockwinkle. You also had the Rockers and versus Doug Summers and Buddy Rose, one of the great tag team feuds of the 1980s that produced some great matches as well. But in the background of all of that, things are just starting to get a little bit messy you have a Wrestle Rock show in April of 86. So two weeks after this, they have Wrestle Rock at the Minneapolis Metrodome or the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome, the Triple H Metrodome, as it's known in some circles. And you say Wrestle Rock. Well, this is clearly they're trying to capitalize on the whole rock and wrestling thing that the WWF had started in 1984. So when you think of Minnesota, you think, oh, well, Prince is the most famous musical artist from Minnesota. And while the word is that they tried to get Prince for the Wrestle Rock Rumble, which would have been quite a draw, in my opinion, they ended up getting Waylon Jennings, which, fine artist to go see. I don't know if he was necessarily right for that time and place and all that. But speaking of music, around this time, around this Wrestle Rock, and, and this is rather famous. I mean, I probably don't have to add much to it. AWA tried their hand at rap music, which, you know, a lot of a lot of areas did this in the mid-80s, where we have to do a song where multiple people get together and basically cut a rap. And it always tended to be large groups of white people, so it never ended up being any good or have any sort of soul behind it. It just kind of kept happening because of the Chicago Bears' success with the Super Bowl shuffle. One group does it okay, and then all of a sudden, we have a bunch of imitators. And the whitest wrestling promotion there is decides to take a stab at the <laughs> rap game, <laughs> infamously with the Wrestle Rock Rumble video, which I will be breaking down in painstaking detail on this show. In fact, this is actually one of those things. Sometimes when I get into a show... I get a little nervous, or when I'm approaching a show, I feel a little bit of anxiety because, oh boy, I'm only going to have one shot at doing this, and I you know, better make it good. Like when I did the Mega Powers exploding in Milwaukee back in, I think it was episode 26, I was only going to have one real shot at that, so I really felt a lot of pressure on myself to make it good. So, we'll be talking about that later on but you see many of the other 
stars, mainstays of the AWA in action on this show, including Larry Zbysko, who is in the opening match, Brad Rangens, Jerry Blackwell, you know, the AWA names that you really know, but we'll also see some names that you might be familiar with more from other places, such as the World Wrestling Federation, like Boris Zukov, Nord the Barbarian, John Nord, who would go on to become the Berserker, but was in a variety of different promotions over time. Scott Hall and Kurt Henning are the AWA Tag Team Champions. They have a match on this show. And we also see Sergeant Slaughter in action, the AWA America's Champion. I can talk about the peculiar nature of that belt. We're also going to see a promo from some fella called the Baby Bull, Leon White, who is getting ready to challenge for the AWA World Heavyweight title. So with all that in mind, let's just jump right into the show. I don't want to hear anything about, oh, Falco was a one-hit wonder. Because there's nothing wrong with being a one-hit wonder. It compensated pretty well for that one hit. And it gave us the greatest Simpsons parody song of all time. Oh, help me, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas. Mmm, that's good satire. So we open, it's Ken Resnick, who is actually the ring announcer here. And he was the Gene Okerlund replacement in 1984 when Okerlund went to the WWF. Very unenviable position for him. Because Okerlund was kind of, uh, you know, a local icon in Minnesota. And for him to take over is kind of a tough spot. And Resnick would stay there for a little over two years. And he would walk shortly after this. And coincidentally enough, find himself in the World Wrestling Federation for about a year where he was the very definition from a broadcast perspective of a 5 out of 10. You know, he's perfectly fine. He didn't really bring anything to the table, but he didn't take things off the table either. You know, when I see him doing the interviews, I'm always kind of a little disappointed that it's not Oakland instead because there's not too many bloopers that I've seen of Ken Resnick, you know, screwing around with Don Morocco or anything like that so our opening match is earthquake ferris the real one and yes i had (laughs) about 20 episodes ago i was talking about john tenta earthquake and mistakenly referred to him as earthquake ferris during his (laughs) tryout match with the wwf when in fact he was earthquake evans earthquake ferris a completely different guy oh you know him well yeah now i do so I'm not going to make that mistake again. I take great pride in not making you know obvious blunders on this show. Maybe I'll misstate something, like I'll say SummerSlam 89 instead of 88. But I do pride myself on getting things mostly correct. He's taking on Larry Zbysko. So this is clearly going to be a great match without any stalling of any kind. In our commentary, we have the very dynamic duo of Larry Nelson and Vern Gagne. This is not the Larry Nelson who won the 1987 Masters tournament. No, this is the Larry Nelson who kind of got caught up in a lot of the AWA partying that was going on at the time. As described in his book, which I, I haven't read 
by any means, and I have no real desire to, but apparently for, for a Larry Nelson tell-all, there's a little bit more in there than you would think there is. And Vern on commentary, it's like, give me a break. Like This is the best guy you could find for this job. And the two of them kind of sound alike, and I have issues telling them apart. So, yeah, they do give me time to, you know, figure it out because Larry stalls. What a, what a shocker! And then, then against the ropes, he does a clean break. So, not very heelish by Larry there, but he gets into more stalling as he points towards Scott Ledoux, who is now sitting at ringside at the commentary table. He's not on commentary; he's just sitting there with him, and Ledoux who is no relation to Joe Ledoux, at least that I know of. This Scott Ledoux was a boxer that they brought in as a troubleshooting referee, which those angles never really seem to pan out as good as you'd hope. WWF was going to try it the following year with Mr. T, but that flamed out pretty quickly. WCW did it with Ole Anderson in 1992 under the Bill Watts regime. I didn't particularly enjoy that much either. And those two, Larry and Ledoux, would have a match at Wrestle Rock, one of, I believe, 15 on that show. So if you think WrestleMania this year was long, just try and put yourself through the three and a half, four hours of Wrestle Rock, where you don't have Jesse Ventura on commentary, speaking of AWA refugees, or anybody really entertaining that, you know, is going to carry you through some of the bad matches. Larry uh, hits a mule kick, and Larry. This is a part of his career that I would like to forget. The Larry Zabisco is a martial artist thing where he's wearing the karate gear and doing like he's chopping blocks of wood and all that stuff. (laughs) But actually, um, you're not going to hear very many clips of commentary on this show because Larry Nelson and Vern Gagne aren't exactly doing it for me. (laughs) But this this line from them is kind of weird. Look, just because Gordon Soley would use that word, it's a type of rug. You're not referring to a part of the world or human beings like that. Or it's the name of a restaurant in my hometown of Woburn, actually my favorite Chinese food place. It kind of makes me miss living there, I would say. They, they always had the best lo mein. So Larry, just to prove that he didn't quite get the WWF or WWWF fully out of his system after leaving in 1981 does an extended King of the Mountain spot where he's keeping Ferris on the outside of the ring. By the way, Ferris is weighing in about 350 pounds, I think it was, so he's kind of like the real earthquake in that regard, and I know that Ferris came before him, but, you know, Tenta supplanted him. He's he's the real earthquake. Ferris does reverse whip into the corner and gets an avalanche and then hits three body slams in a row. So this tells you that it is definitely the 1980s. Very heavy on the body slams. Second rope he goes up there and he misses a splash and then a flurry of punches from Larry after the missed splash and all of a sudden out of nowhere he gets a pin from a flurry of right hands, which I'm not sure I've ever seen that before, where a guy just throws eight punches on the mat and gets a pinfall out of it. Think of it as Steve Austin in the stone-cold heyday of the late 90s, doing the Luthez press in the Fists of Fury, and him getting a pinfall with that. 
that's pretty much kind of what happened here with Larry Zabisco. That's wrote, um, okay, that was odd. You know, I'm not going to argue about these two guys going any longer because I just did not find Larry Zabisco all that interesting in this spot. I mean, he certainly left something on the table from leaving the WWF. And yes, he may have left for reasons of, I don't feel like I was getting paid enough for my services. And I can respect that. But the whole karate thing and a lot of his AWA stuff is, I don't want to say it's turned the channel annoying, but it's starting to it's starting to get there. It would, you know, I'm trying to think of his career. You have the Bruno feud, which obviously is the biggest part of his career. If you just listen to his Hall of Fame speech where he's talking about the real estate around Bruno's dwelling, I don't know what word he was using for it over and over and over again. Oh, right, a yard. Larry is kind of like a baseball player who had a 40 home run season, who had a very good career, but that 40 home run season, for whatever, is the one that sticks in people's mind. And yeah, he had his moments in the AWA. I'm always amused by the angle at Super Clash 3 with Kurt Henning, where they wrote it that way because they were afraid that Kurt Henning was going to leave for the WWF. And then they, when he decides to stay, oh, there's no evidence that Larry Zbysko handed Kurt Henning a roll of coins, even though it's like on camera and there's coins everywhere afterwards. It's just kind of hilarious. But Larry, some of it is hit and miss with me, and maybe I'm discounting his stand against the NWO in 97 and 98 because that was pretty cool because he was the most consistent guy in that whole promotion at that time. And ladies and gentlemen, the AWA World Championship on the line, Stan the Lariat Hanson against the Baby Bull, 375 pounds, former LA Ram Leon White. Leon, you tangled with Hanson once before and took him to the limit. Promo for the upcoming show on April 28th at the Brendan Byrne Arena, which later became the IZOD Center, the Continental Airlines Arena, basically the hockey slash basketball arena that the New Jersey Devils and New Jersey Nets played in until fairly recently. I want to say around 2010 when it was vacated. I know WWE made a point when they had their last show there they kind of made a big deal out of it it was originally called the brendan byrne arena if you ever wondered who brendan byrne was he actually only passed away this january in 2018 and he was a governor of new jersey in the 70s and into the early 80s who mobsters were caught on an fbi wiretap talking about how he was so ethical he could not be bought which in New Jersey made him immensely popular considering that just about everybody else is on the take. So on this show, it's Stan Hansen defending the AWA title against Leon White. Young Vader we have here. And by the way, Young should be in parentheses because he is 30 years old in 1986. So when you think about his disappointing WWF run decade later just think of the fact that he was 40 years old at that point and things start to break down when you're a man of that size it's referred to as a former la ram he only played two years with the los angeles rams in 78 and 79 but that was one of the years in which the la rams made the super bowl in fact i think it was their only super bowl appearance as the los angeles rams losing super bowl 14 to the pittsburgh steelers but a ruptured patella 
tendon ended his career and back in those days an injury like that would put you out for good I know that I know that other players more recently might have had a similar injury that you can come back from. That's something that artificial turf would really exacerbate. I don't think that the Rams played on artificial turf, but I know that there was a guy who was playing at the Veterans Stadium in Philly who ruptured both patella tendons at the same time. Wendell Davis of the Chicago Bears. It is one of the most gruesome injuries I've ever seen, and I'm digressing a lot here. This is not the Stan Hansen Vader feud that you'd later see in all Japan pro wrestling several years down the road where they would have eye-popping matches both literally and figuratively in 1990 when Vader's eye coming out of his socket in one of the grossest moments ever and those guys would just lay into each other and you'd expect nothing less but it is neat that they also had a little war here in 1986 AWA it kind of makes this promotion for this particular year special in that way and they had had a match about a month before on television it's on youtube the match runs about 12 or 13 minutes and leon white he loses after a missed charge not an sd jones charge because he put up a pretty good effort and after he missed the charge hansen hit him with the lariat and rolled him up for the pen it's interesting to see, though, a guy who is in the high 300 pounds being portrayed as the plucky, inexperienced underdog. But in watching that match, it really sort of worked for me. And the only thing, though, is Vader, he doesn't have all the uh, hoo-ha that came with the Vader gimmick. There's no smoking horns on his uh, body or anything like that. It's just sort of good old Leon with a hat on, no mask, and he kind of looks like a bigger Jim Gaffigan if Jim Gaffigan just decided to wear a hat and put on about, I don't know, 80 pounds or so. Well, Ken, I got to give it to Stan Hansen. He's 6'4", he's 320 pounds, perhaps the most vicious wrestler in the game today. He knows his business, and deservingly so, he is the heavyweight champion of the world. Well, Stan Hansen, I'm 6'4", I'm 375 pounds, and I've been working out harder than I've ever worked in my life. I'm been stressing 560, and I'm ready for you in the Meadowlands. You can kind of tell just listening to him. He sounds more like a pro athlete giving a post-game interview than a wrestler. You don't get the classic Vader, you know, or kind of sounds more like Tim Allen, I guess. But you, you know how Vader would sound in the 90s when he would at his he was at his peak. He wouldn't necessarily sound like a regular dude, which is what he comes off as there. So not leaving well enough alone, Larry Zabisco jumps onto the scene. He interrupts and starts yelling about how he should have the title shot. And the whole thing, I don't know what they were going for here, but you know, 1986 was a time when the sports media was a lot more peaceful and you didn't have these yelling and screaming debate shows. But this is what this is what it turned into. Los no, Angeles Rams players. Listen back there because I'm listening to these announcements and all the rest of this gaga going on. Let me tell you something to your face. Here. You're the luckiest man in the world. And the people in New York who know my reputation have to agree. I should have the shot at Stan Hansen. If two people are going to yell at each other for that long, and I'm going to have to sit here and listen to it, 
it better end with one of the two guys telling the other to go take a shit in his hat. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the pro wrestling only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Earlier, I had referred to the AWA as a lily-white promotion, but there is one person of color here in William Tabb, who is known as the Black Assassin in some circles. I believe it was down in Florida. In a very good look in everything. You know, only about a year into the business at this point, if even that. So he's purely on an enhancement level at this time. And that years down the road wouldn't stop the AWA from doing a racial angle with him, with Colonel De Beers, the racist, apartheid-loving South African who was counted out rather than facing a black man in a wrestling match. That was the angle they were doing in 1988 as the South African apartheid regime was winding down. Anyway, Tab is taking on the rotund Jerry Blackwell. It's kind of funny that a guy (laughs) with the last name of a diet soda is taking on a 400-pound, 5'9 guy like Jerry Blackwell, who was a popular mainstay in the AWA for many years. He effectively replaced Hogan as the kind of beloved babyface of... He belongs to us. He is of the AWA. Blackwell, too, had a famous match with Colonel De Beers. And it's more famous for just kind of what it was and when it was. It was a ladder match in the 80s in the AWA, but also a ladder match involving a 400-pound guy like Jerry Blackwell is particularly unusual but in the small clips of it that I've been able to see online, it's actually not that bad. And Blackwell, he's one of those guys, eh, he's a little rotund. Maybe he doesn't move around uh, quite as well, maybe, as he had could in earlier years. But to kind of explain him to a WWF fan who is more WWF only, I look at Blackwell and I see the absolute best case version of Tugboat, that this is the absolute best that Tugboat could have been if everything had worked out perfectly. Which is funny to think of because of that whole story of Bruce Pritchard saying that they wanted to turn Tugboat against Hogan and make him Sheik Tugboat because Jerry Blackwell was actually Sheik Blackwell in 1983 (laughs) under... Sheik Adnan LKC. So kind of interesting that, you know, they would have been linked in that way. And I I didn't think of that right when I wrote it down. I just kind of thought of it right now. He's got the agility a little bit, not to bring up John Tenta again for the second straight match, but like Tenta, he could do drop kicks. He does a drop kick in this match and is not particularly good. As I said, he's not moving around maybe like he was earlier in the 1980s. He's certainly a better worker than a guy like Tugboat. You could get a decent match out of Jerry Blackwell. It, you know, sometimes you just look at him and you say, "Boy, you know, this guy's uh, <laughs> looks to be a little out of shape." But 
one of those guys that, you know, while he was shaped very much like a basketball, he could definitely get around the ring. And he did consider jumping to the WWF in 1984, along with just about everybody else in the world. And there is a bit of a backstory as to why he decided not to make that jump when it seemed like every single guy and their brother was doing it. Before being signed, wrestlers were, this is in the WWF, wrestlers were required to record promos, but a large number, the large number of wrestlers wanting to join the WWF made for a long lineup on a day while the interviews were being recorded. Blackwell got so frustrated with standing in line that he left, claiming that he was a wrestler and did not want to feel like he was punching a time clock for a corporation. Hey, I mean, I gotta, I gotta respect that. He, he acted on the way he felt and wasn't, you know, just going to hang around in line and do something he didn't want to do, only for money. He's five foot nine, and it makes him unique. It, it, it does make me wonder if he could have been a viable Hulk Hogan opponent, especially early on, considering that the formula of Hogan versus Giant Fat Monster of the Month didn't really come in more until Bundy and then after Andre. You just had to have fat guy after fat guy because when you beat Andre, I mean, where else are you going to go? You just kind of have to go with that one type. Blackwell, to start off this match, he kind of gets sick of the whole breaking clean thing, and then he runs over Tab. It's... (laughs) As I said, just having a guy who's named for diet soda facing Jerry Blackwell really struck me as kind of funny. And he gets a little distracted preening for the fans, but doesn't end up in too much trouble. Tab gets in a shot or two, but then he just kind of brushes it off. Blackwell does. A slam and a big knee drop. And he goes for the pin, and he pulls the guy up. So Blackwell... While he is a popular babyface, he's kind of a badass babyface who really doesn't give a crap what anybody thinks. He's going to pull guys up at two like he's a heel. His offense, some of it is a little bit heelish as well. Larry Nelson, not exactly a fan of Blackwell uh, pulling the guy up, but in fact, I think that just makes him even more endearing. As I said, he throws a drop kick here, and I think in other days he could maybe get off the ground a little bit more. This is almost more of a drop kick to the quadricep area. <laughs> it'd be it'd be really devastating if he was facing Kevin Nash, but <laughs> I, I don't know. And then he uh, measures Tab with a falling forearm. I, I had written down splash because I was so expecting him to do the big splash, but he didn't do it. Instead, he just hits him with a forearm and picks up the one, two, three. And Jerry Blackwell, one maybe Mr. AWA for the 1980s. Yeah, he's not Nick Bockwinkle. He's not Kurt Henning, but he was a guy that was always there. You always seem to be able to count on him in that promotion. I think I've done enough episodes now where it's pretty well established that there are certain tropes that I really enjoy in wrestling. Some of them I don't enjoy, but now it's time for one that I really enjoy quite a bit. It's the promo interview where the people are behind a cage, famously done by Macho Man and Sherry and Zeus to promote the No Holds Barred match the movie, but done by 
various other guys over time and videos that I've covered and ones that I haven't. I've mentioned the Angelo Mosca one on Maple Leaf Wrestling from early 1984 when he was still more of a performer than an announcer. And here we have the Road Warriors. and They are going to be taking on the Koloffs, Nikita and Ivan, at the Meadowlands on the 28th. And the Road Warriors in 86 look noticeably different but I think they'd look a lot more badass in their early days. Yeah, yeah, they're several years in, but they're not quite halfway through their run as a top tag team. I think it pretty much peters out the second that, that Rocco makes an appearance in 92. That was pretty much the end. Anytime the puppets start coming out, it's usually a sign. They're like, it's like Cousin Oliver showing up on the Brady Bunch. Like, all right, we, we've reached the end. All right, we, we get it. But these are the good old days. These are the days of the Road Warriors. When you hear Road Warrior pop, that phrase, that comes from directly from like 1985, 86, 87. They're not so cartoony. And this is a different sort of promo here. And I'm not talking about the fact that Paul Ellering is not there. He might have been put out by the Koloffs. They did do show a clip of that later on. It's interesting in that you think of LOD and WWF and the Road Warriors everywhere else with Hawk being the main talker here. But Animal gets to do most of the talking here, which is kind of interesting. And it's it's a really strange interview (laughs) by these guys who are these badass dudes who wear shoulder pads with metal spikes on them and painted faces. And here's Animal complaining about double teams by the opposition. Hey, Ken Resnick, everybody out there knows what the call-offs have been doing, jumping people from behind. Well, they made one big mistake by jumping over from behind. Now, we want to take a look at this tape, Ken Resnick. Roll this tape and show them the reason why we're in the cage in the Meadowlands. Now, look, as usual, the men two on one, Ken Resnick. There's no way there could be two people on one person. As usual, call-offs to a double team work. There's no reason for that clothesline there. Now look, my manager comes in to try to help us out, and they cold drop him when he's not even looking. What is the fairness in that, Resnick? Absolutely. No, that's right, none. It is a little weird hearing the Road Warriors complaining about double teaming and how they wanted a cage match to avoid double teams, even though it's much easier to double team in a cage. You just incapacitate one guy, and then you can double up on the other guy. doesn't really make a lot of sense there. Although, I did like how Animal is kind of doing an impromptu director's thing, like, hey, throw it to the videotape, and then takes a turn at color analysis at what's going on, Paul Ellering getting beaten down there. And Hawk, when he... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when Hawk gets his turn, there there are three words that you associate with his promos. What a rush. But we don't get that here. And we're coming out on top of it all. That's why Redneck, the Ranger King. We've been in cage all our life in Chicago and New York. You're going to see us kick the Russian butt. This is the end. So weird. I, I, I'm just guessing that Hawk by saying this is the end is just foreshadowing James Franco's death in some way. 
know if it's Stockholm Syndrome or what it is, but I'm enjoying the bumpers on this AWA show. Maybe it's not quite to the level of the Memphis one, but uh, still, it's perfectly fine. And up next, we have another AWA mainstay, Brad Rankin, sort of like the enforcer of the promotion for Vern, except for that time when he left for the WWF and late 86 and into 87 which is so weird to see him in that ring he's teaming up with carl styles and they are taking on nord the barbarian and boris zukov so yes boris zukov uh not quite full you know soviet rah-rah here he's wearing black trunks he's with sheik adnan lkc and looking at these four guys gee i wonder who's going to eat the pinfall here and believe it or not it's not going to be boris and they actually flip a coin on the Sheik side to see who's going to wrestle the match. Because I think Brody was there, but he's not going to waste his time on this nonsense. And Rengen's attacks early on Boris, you know, the All-American Boy Olympics. And you're trying to make him Mr. USA in the AWA. And one thing that I've noticed with this show is there seems to be a drop kick in every single match. I'm not sure why that is. I was just kind of thinking about it. Rangans catches Zukov with two drop kicks that remind me why sometimes you need to make camera cuts on pro wrestling at the right time. I'm not going to say why, but you can kind of figure it out by the fact that when they keep it on the hard camera for the drop kick, you can kind of drive a Cadillac between Rangans' feet and where Zukov's head is, and rather substantial head, by the way. It's like bigger than, you know, (laughs) bigger than a sidewalk curb or whatever. You could drive a car right through that. But it's a necessary evil to do the camera cuts in that fashion. And he starts working the leg a little bit. And this is where I notice that Boris's hair is... (laughs) (laughs) he's not completely bald as he is in the wwf instead he has i don't know what you call call it i know freddie blassie called it a whatnot with killer khan back in the 1981 episode that i covered he zukov he kind of looks like one of the monks in the movie airplane no thanks we gave it the office that's the line my wife always gives to the college kids with the clipboards who are quote-unquote working for the environment who come up to her you know and ask her to sign a petition or whatever because you know she is an environmental consultant and all yeah boris's hair it does kind of distract from the fact that he does have a very large head he does tag out to nord for the all minnesota pairing with nord and rangans and and brad at this point, he just kind of cheap shots Zukov off the apron for no no real reason at all. Really the worst cheap shot by a guy named Brad ever. I keep making these references to Marshand. <laughs> I just remember now that you got Zukov and General Adnan there, and these two would reunite for that 1990 Survivor Series match where all of Sergeant Slaughter's teammates got eliminated in like the first two minutes of the match. It's one of my favorite, like, comically bad Survivor Series matches just for the way it set up and goes. I may have said this on the podcast before, and also for the Howard Finkel, Sergeant Slaughter has been disqualified after the dramatic pause where it's 
plainly obvious because of, you know, the referee saw the interference with the flag and all that. The 1990 Survivor Series is much more interesting than what's going on in this match. But Nord, as a guy very early in his career, was 1985 Pro Wrestling Illustrated Rookie of the Year. He hits a delayed power slam here. So kind of a unique move for 1986, I guess. Gets a two count. Then he gets into some boring wrist lock stuff. It's very, you know, just like much of John Nord's career, there's a lot of hits and a lot of misses. And then we go into the wrist lock. Then he does a freaking leapfrog, which leaves me scratching my head. This is where I would talk to John and say, look, we know you're athletic, but there are other ways for you to show it than to be taking a risk by being a guy of your size doing a leapfrog, which... By the way, Brad Rangens then cartwheels around a monkey flip attempt by Nord. And more drop kicks from Rangens because he, he knows what Vern Gagne likes. His more drop kicks. I mean, if you've ever seen the Vern Gagne pic- picture, the wrestler from 1974, which is pretty much the Vern Gagne version of that movie Mr. Burns made about himself for the Springfield Film Festival. <laughs> Like, it's it's very self-indulgent and all. And like, oh, Vern's dropkick. Like, yes, what, what a devastating hold. Doesn't exactly uh, make the movie stand up over time. And Rengens finally tags out to Carl Stiles. So now we, now we can finally get down to the business here of just pinning Carl Stiles and moving on. I could not find really much of anything on Carl Stiles other than the fact that he adopted a new persona, Dr. D, which I feel like is a big mistake because that'll piss off David Schultz if he ever found out about it. And he was one half of the AWA Tag Team Champions alongside Hector Guerrero in late 1987, I think when they were just running around trying to find another team to put the titles on because the Rockers were no longer there and, in fact, couldn't even come back to the AWA for at least a little while because they had burned a bridge. Of course, they'd be back by early 88. Styles gets overwhelmed completely as expected. Now I've said a lot about the size of Boris Zukov's head and God knows enough was made of it in his WWF tenure. Larry Nelson has a really odd take on it. Boris Zukov using that head as a battering ram and I mean a head that's the size double the size of a normal person. Reminds him an Indiana basketball. I have no idea what would make his head like an Indiana basketball or why an Indiana basketball would be any different than a regular basketball. And why Indiana? Anyway, 86 Indiana Hoosiers, actually one of the bigger upsets of the NCAA tournament of that era, lost to a 14 seed Cleveland State, which is chronicled in the John Feinstein book season on the brink, which I think should still be in print, even though it's been over 30 years. Brad tries to break up the pin after a DDT, and in the chaos of it all, he does save things temporarily. Nord comes in with a huge running leg drop by Nord the Barbarian. I mean, my God, he's he's just flipping back and forth, boring me and wowing me. It's a very, very strange performance by him, but the, that gets a three count because Brad gets in there too late to break things up. But then he immediately gets his heat back because Vern has a soft spot for him, clearly. And yeah, we're going to job you out, but we're going to pull you Dom DiNucci thing. We're going to pair you with a jobber, but you're not going to be eating any pins. 
and he beats up Nord and Zukov and sends them out of the ring. Uh, yeah, this match was certainly nothing much. This this is why I get distracted on stuff like this. Why I'm going to talk about 1986 Indiana Hoosier basketball. And, you know, there's not a whole lot there either. But this match pretty much just sucked, except for John Nord's uh, intermittent wowing of me, the flashes of brilliance. Monday, April 28th at 7.30, the Meadowlands, the site of a great card of professional wrestling, including the Rage in the Cage, two gigantic cage matches, one of them, one fall to a finished tag team match between the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors, with Precious Paul Ellering and Ivan and Nikita Koyal. What happened when... Tony Schiavone invaded the AWA. Does keep up with the theme from last week of Lance Russell appearing in a commercial on the WWF show, Announcer Invasion. So yes, this is still technically Pro Wrestling USA, so that's why Tony Schiavone is here. And he is also behind a cage, so I get a double on this one. And he is there with the Koloffs, which, again, yet another Nikita Koloff promo here. And how many seconds did it take you to realize that I was playing the clip backwards from the Nikita Koloff promo? <laughs> because it makes just as much sense. But luckily, Uncle Ivan is there. And he's going to clean this shit up because that's what he does. I, my appreciation for Ivan Koloff just grows and grows with every time I see him. It's not just him, you know, lifting the incomprehensible Nikita up along with him. It's just he's a very good promo. He's I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. I, I really don't even have to explain it. But this promo here is interesting because it keeps up the bizarre theme we had earlier with the, the whining road warriors there. This one almost kind of comes off like a babyface promo in a vacuum. Last time in Meadowlands, they had to cheat. They had to cheat. That is the only way they ever can get any place, these Americans. But we walked out of the ring, and you were laid on your back. Time and time again, this has happened. Paul Elvery, how does your back feel? How does your neck feel? Nothing we care. Because you are nothing but another American. But it was an example, a deliberate example, to these road warriors that you manage. Because of what you've done to Crusher Khrushchev, a deliberate move on your part. Whenever you weren't even involved in the match, you come out there and you grab Crusher's leg, twisted it, and turned it until, until you tore all the ligaments in his leg. Well, he will be back. But meanwhile, we are going to get revenge against you. You asked for a cage match. That is fine. You have felt before what the chain feels like. Well, a lot of battles you may have won, but the war, we will win. That is the only way that this will ever be settled, is whenever you are out of wrestling, when we hurt you so bad that you are buried. Yes, you can look at this as being the iron curtain around you. And in the Meadowlands, the Russian team of the Kolob is going to put your road warriors down for good. All right, maybe not a pure babyface promo from the Russian bear Ivan Koloff. But I've never walked away from listening to him talk and say, boy, that sucked, or boy, he didn't make any sense. I mean, yes, he's Russian. He's really a guy from Canada portraying a Russian. 
but he's still communicating what he needs to the audience, what he needs them to know, which is something that thankfully maybe Nikita would learn a little bit over time, at least by osmosis or something. Playstation Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlayStation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Potpourri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlaceMation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceMation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryWrestling.com, and Scott Geek's Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as well. PlaceOfNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. All over the country, Sunday afternoon, April 20th, the Metrodome in Minneapolis, Russell Rock, and now at long last, the debut. And it's absolutely sensational. Take a look, the Russell Rock Rumble. For all my critiques earlier in the show about this rap video that the AWA put together, the Russell Rock Rumble. Rap music and wrestling do share quite a bit in common when you really think about it. I mean, both genres are really about telling stories, whether it be growing up in a housing project and you know trying to survive on a daily basis or the many stories that you've seen in pro wrestling over the years. They've both been looked down upon by the upper crust of society, You remember back in the late 80s with the, oh, gangster rap, and we have to put warning labels on the CDs and Tipper Gore and all that nonsense. And also people are like wrestling. Oh, that's that's kid stuff without a real understanding of why we, you and I, enjoy watching wrestling. And of course, rap music and pro wrestling also had NWAs that fell apart in the late 1980s. <laughs> I, that, that was actually the first one that I had thought of that they have in common. The, the group NWA, you know, with Easy e taking off. Hey, both of them have an Easy e too, that kind of uh, wrecked a large group or whatever. <laughs> so there's more in common with rap and pro wrestling than you might think of on the surface. 
But that doesn't mean that the AWA should have gone ahead and done a rap video with this roster of people, none of whom you would think would be any good at rapping. So I thought to myself, how do I possibly break down this video? And you have to do it in segments because each guy gets about 10 to 15 seconds to say his piece whether it have to do with his feud or if he's just making a speech or whatever. So they put together this <laughs> They commissioned these guys. You got Jerry Blackwell in there, Greg Gagne, Kurt Henning, Scott Hall, tag team champions. It's just truly bizarre. It is the definition of wrestle crap to a lot of people, but it is it bad from start to finish? What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through with each individual actor, I guess, in the song, and I'm going to give them a grade from 0 to 10, let's say. And then at the end, I'll tally it all up, and I'll have a final standing for the Wrestle Rock rap video and who's the best, who's the worst, and uh, all that. So let's just get to it. Video starts with a shot of the Metrodome from above, which actually is now the site of U.S. Bank Stadium, which hosted Super Bowl 52 featuring the New England Patriots. And we have Ken Resnick in front of the showboat in Las Vegas where the AWA would do their tapings for the ESPN show. And Resnick's flow is almost non-existent here. It, it, it just doesn't pay off in any sort of way. And he's it, it's very generic with the white people always be like, this is dot, 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 and then you say your name, and I have to say, like, why is it that every every rap song done by white people in the 1980s had to go, this is Peter Winston and I'm here to say, da 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 da, da in a major way. Like, come on. And I'm also, uh, <laughs> I'm also deducting points because of the get on at the end. I mean, that, that, that has no place in this kind of music. So I'm going to give him a score of 2.5 out of 10 the model that you hear at the end it's sort of like bumpers in the song it's alexa anastasia who is billed as playboys girls of rock and roll which i try to find out more on these people and i really had nothing on her with the midnight rockers sean and marty we love to wrestle and we love to party you don't have to worry we're not gonna bumble because we'll be shaking through the wrestle rock rumble that's rock Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, the Midnight Rockers, kind of show there why they are the Midnight Rockers and not the Midnight Rappers. The lyrics there are a bit clumsy. I feel like fumble is there only because how many words are there that rhyme with rumble? I guess tumble. We're going to do a tumble or something like that. Maybe you could do that, but even the word tumble in a song like this really doesn't work. However, I do give them points for telling the truth about their lives 
they love to wrestle, I guess, because it gets them money so that they can party. And they most certainly love to party, especially in the 80s when it would really get them into trouble. I'm going to give Sean and Marty a three and a half out of ten for their verse. Now, the guy at the end is Jonathan Van Braun, who is the Elvis impersonator at the Imperial Palace at that time, the dearly departed Imperial Palace Hotel, which I believe has been replaced by something else now. I know know the Imperial Palace is definitely close. The best Elvis impersonator to me in Las Vegas, and maybe I'm biased here, is Steve Conley and his Spirit of the King show, which for years was at the Fitzgerald's Hotel, which is now, I think, the D. He's at the Four Queens, and if you're in Vegas, first of all, I recommend downtown Vegas because, to me, it's a lot more fun than the Strip. You know, it's it's a little bit less glitzy, but you get more of that old-timey feel. It's also more affordable as well. And his his show is just tremendous i saw him at fitzgerald's and then i saw him when he came to boston in january of 2006 which was something of a homecoming for conley because he was born in winchester massachusetts so there's your vegas travel tip there and back to the song i'm the shit and that's not funny i got my army a lot of money if Ghani in my way i make him crumble he be sorry i did the rust rock rumble be there. I might be grading on a curve here, but we got Sheik Adnan Al Casey, future WWF pay-per-view main eventer, with Bruiser Brody. Brody, you don't hear him at all. It's obviously all Adnan. Now, it's a guy in his late 40s who was literally born in Iraq, and he's doing the best he can here. He gets better lyrics, I think, than the people who came before him. But for whatever reason, I think that the accent gives him a little bit of cachet. It makes him stand out within the song. And also, he gets the benefit of having a pretty funny part of the video. He's shown coming into the ring trying to break up a pin, and the heel partner of Adnan kicks out and does it with such force that he throws the baby face into Adnan. At least I think that's what happens. It's not the greatest video quality in the world but before that it is Adnan with Brody sitting there and Brody has his hand out in the what will become more famous after his death the berserker hus hus motion and he's putting money in his hand so it makes sense with the lyrics like I am the sheik and that's not funny I give my army lots of money so I think it was a good job by Adnan there with what he was given you know he, he he's limited in term you know English is not his first language so I'm actually going to give him four and a half points out of ten and I realize that that's really generous and it's grading on a curve but I enjoyed the video together with the lyrics there and this is capped with Glinda Ruiz who I don't know what she was then, and I looked her up, and she might be a real estate agent in Texas, so I don't know. I'm Jerry Blackwell, I want to see. I want to get my hands on that pencil neck geek, because I want the EDF fumble. I'm going to make my splash in the Wrestle Rock Rumble. The A.W.A. You, me, and Wrestle Rock. All right, there are a number of problems with 
Jerry Blackwell and his rapping here. I'm sure he's a very nice man, kind to animals, kind to the fans, and all that. But the unfortunate fact is that he either could not read or had trouble reading from what I've heard on the reviews here. And there's really no flow. So you don't have to be an advanced reader, I think, to rap well. It's just that him taking it and translating it out just doesn't work. He didn't get exactly the greatest verse either. I mean, cheat and geek do not rhyme with each other. I'm sorry, Jerry, that just doesn't work. The only thing that really saves that part of the video is he does the splash through like a giant piece of wood. I don't quite understand when he says I'm going to make my splash at the Wrestle Rock Rumble. I only give this one a 2 out of 10. And they close with Susan Griffiths, who is playing Marilyn Monroe at the Imperial Palace's Legends in Concert, which also included Elvis from earlier. And when my parents, when I stayed, when I was living out in Las Vegas in 03 and into 04, and they came to see me at the tail end of 03, we were trying to decide what show to go to on one of the nights. And it came down to the Imperial Palace Legends in Concert or to the Wayne Brady comedy show. <laughs> and needless to say, my parents, who at the time were uh, just over 60 years old, we went to see the Imperial Palace Legends in Concert. I'm Greg Gunn, and I'm in a rage. I want Brody, and I want him in a cage. I plan drop kick will make him see double. I grind him up at the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Woo! Wrestle Rock. This is definitely my least favorite part of the video. You know, if I ever had to, you know, kill a boner or something because it was inappropriate, I would just ask for somebody to show me this part of the Wrestle Rock Rumble video with Greg Gagne just basically appropriating a style of music and temporarily ruining it for everybody. It is some of the worst shit I've ever seen in my entire life. It is truly awful. I, I would rather watch Vivisection than Greg Gagne ever rapping again. First of all, the white hat makes him look like a complete goofball, even by Greg Gagne standards. You, the lyrics are friggin' horrible from start to finish. The, the guy delivering it just sucks at everything. The head scissors that he does in the video just looks completely goofy and not really... I don't know. It, it's like that. It goes back to that Lanny Poffo thing that I was talking about last week. Something just looks off about it. Not entirely sure what that is, but it just doesn't look right. The woo at the end is another form of cultural appropriation here, stealing from Ric Flair in a rap song, by the way. You know, there are rappers who have made entire songs about Ric Flair. So I don't think you should be stealing from the Nature Boy, Greg. All right. I. I decided I needed to be fair to this video, so I'm only going to give it a minus 14 out of a scale of 0 to 10. And at the end, we hear Monet Swan, who is now 57 years old. And uh, I know I said that Greg Gagne was a bit of a boner killer, but she looks pretty good for 57, i got to admit. I'm Kurt Hennig and Big Scott Hall. And tag team champs will take on them all. So bring on the long riders, those dirt ball dumbos. We'll smear those whips. Do the rest rock run. Tag champs Scott Hall and Kurt Henning 
try to save this one coming out of the pool. Not bad on the lyrics there. It might be a little bit clumsy, and I think Kurt Henning might have been going through puberty at the time. His voice sounds a little high. I don't know if it was something that was looped weird or something like that. But despite maybe the the lyrics not being the greatest in the world, I'm going to give this a 4 out of 10. And here's why. In the video, there are three women there, and they push Hall and Henning back into the pool. And Henning does a full three, like 180 bump into the pool and into the shallow end, too. So he goes headfirst into the shallow end. You could say that sometimes that Kurt Henning would take bumps that were kind of unnecessary. Diving into the shallow end, there's literally like a thing at the every pool you've ever been to with the do not dive in with the little the Ghostbusters sign on the diving thing. But Kurt. He was will he was willing to bump for this. So you know what? Just for Henning's bump, I'm now giving it a seven and a half out of ten. That that's how much I appreciate Kurt putting out for the business. And, however, in making me really think about it, who knows what happened with Henning or whatever, but this has to be what turned him against rap music. The whole West Texas Rednecks. I don't think that happens without the Wrestle Rock video. So maybe we should be thankful. <laughs> that this actually exists. Then Hall and Henning, they later they'd show them walking towards a hotel and they run into Shawn Michaels outside the hotel and their paths are crossing. Henning and Michaels had SummerSlam 93 match, Hall and Shawn, the ladder match at WrestleMania. Uh, the, you know, the history goes on and on, ladder match at WrestleMania 10 and at SummerSlam 95. So you know, it's just so fun to see these guys in this particular context. And speaking of fun. This is Vic Brockwinkle, and I've got a passion. I'll get the title back from the humanoid Hanson. I've got the brains, and I'm not humble. I'll take the belt back and do the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Wrestle Rock, people, Konya, at the dome. Wrestle Rock, 86, If ever I'm in a debate with somebody, uh, Nick Bockwinkle versus Shawn Michaels and just the whole of their career. I would point out that with Shawn Michaels in his 20s, probably his rapping prime it would be, he basically lost a rap battle to 51-year-old Nick Bockwinkle who grew up in St. Louis, Missouri in the 1940s. And... Man, it's a 51-year-old guy from the Midwest, and he's rapping like this. It really, Bach just kind of defies all space and time. It's why he's a legend who it just will never be appreciated on the same level because of his career being two decades in the AWA, and the losers don't get to write history. Although, if you watch that WWE Legends Roundtable thing on the 70s, it's mostly Nick Bockwinkle talking about how much better he was than everybody else. But, hey, you know, I'm not going to doubt him. He could rap like that. I mean, listen to that. That was friggin' awesome. I'm giving him 8 out of 10. And I just wish that, you know, Bach passed away in 2015. But a Nick Bockwinkle rap album would be one of the greatest things that civilization has ever produced. 
At the end of that, we get Sean and Monet Swan, and he tells her that Wrestle Rock is at the Dome, and she says to be there. <laughs> Just kind of an awkward thing between Sean and Monet there. And then there's a montage of other people who would be at Wrestle Rock. <laughs> You know, people who just would not participate in this video, such as Sergeant Slaughter, Kamala, the U.S. Express, Mike Rotundo, and Barry Windham. And Rotundo has a mustache, which makes it really awkward, because I don't remember him having a mustache for very long. And now we kick it into the self-proclaimed living legend. I'm Larry Zabisco. I won't be through till I get done clapping around Scott the Duke. Gonna beat the ugly bartender into a bundle and laugh all the way doing with the rock rumble. Ow! First of all, I'm very surprised that Larry did his part in 12 seconds and didn't stall and extend it out for another 10 or 11 minutes or so. It's not bad from him, but I'm going to deduct points for that. Ow! At the end, I feel like that was very unnecessary. I feel like that's more of a baby face thing to do. So I don't I don't think that was the right thing for him to cap off his verse. So he only gets a 4 out of 10. This game talk got a mouth that won't quit, but I'm Scott McGee and want to back a little shit. And when I'm through, it won't be able to mumble. I'll be left alone doing the Rapper Rock Rumble. Yeah! And that's Scott Ledoux again, Larry's nemesis. And it's a little too mumbly for my taste. You really can't make out everything that he's saying. I do give him a little bit of credit there for uttering profanity in the song with the quit and shit rhyme. Also, the radio edit with it being the whistle that I think I remember hearing the same whistle in a New Kids on the Block song. I want to say Hanging Tough was the one there. Still, not enough for me to really enjoy that. Thankfully, he kept it to a flat 10 seconds. Most of the guys would go 12 to 15. And I guess Scott Ledoux really knew his limits. I only give him a 2 out of 10. So he, he's tied with Jerry Blackwell. Just one last word from the former champ, Burns, but give it a lot of thought to one more turn. There's some old scores that still give me trouble, and I'm starting to get the urge to do the Wrestle Rock Rumble. All right, first of all, Vern looks like he's giving a speech to the Rotary Club or something. It's, it's clunky. There are too many words there for the amount of time that he has. He's reading directly off the sheet. There's absolutely no passion. I don't believe a single word that he's saying, except for the thinking about taking one more turn. Because God knows, you know, you can't go more than five minutes without a freaking Vern Gagne comeback. So I give, I'm going to be generous, though. I'm going to give this a zero out of ten. So there you have it, and now you know him. And on April 20th, it's at the Dome. So get your ticket to be under the bubble, because you two can be doing the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Do it! Wrestle uh. Rock Rumble. Wrestle uh. Rock Rumble goes back to Ken Resnick who's with some kid who's just kind of standing there and then they show him with a woman at a slot machine because this is all in Las Vegas as I mentioned he was in front of the showboat at the beginning and that's where all of this is most of them are just reading stuff off in a studio but Resnick is doing all of his stuff on a location or in front of a green screen I don't think it really matters they show pics of stuff that had happened earlier in the video because that's what you need you need a recap at the end of a three minute music video this is really kind of a cautionary tale of what happens when you have too many artists 
want to get involved in something. There's just too many passengers here, as evidenced by some of the low ratings, some of the low rap scores that I'm giving to some of these guys. I mean, Bachwinkle is awesome, but he can't carry the entire thing. I mean, you know, he put in his 12 seconds. You know, what What more do you want him to do? If it, if it could have been all Bachwinkle, it would have been better, but I'm sorry. It just, you know, couldn't be that way. So the final standings of the, I don't know, the AWA Rapper Society, or whatever you want to call it. I got number one, Nick Bachwinkle, eight points. Number two, Scott Hall and Kurt Henning, 7.5. And they're only that high because of Henning doing the bump into the pool. General Adnan, Sheik Adnan El Casey, four and a half. Fourth is Larry Zabisco, who got four points. The Midnight Rockers are fifth, three and a half points. Ken Resnick, two and a half points. I don't give him anything extra for the thing at the end. I mean, that was just a whole lot of nothing. Jerry Blackwell and Scott Ledoux are tied for seventh with two points each, but I'm going to give the tiebreaker to Jerry Blackwell just based on the fact that he clearly had problems reading or whatever. So, uh, and I couldn't really understand what Ledoux was saying, and I could understand what Blackwell was saying, for better or worse. Ninth place, Vern Gagne with a zero, and then taking up the tail end of the standings is Greg Gagne with a minus 14. And the lesson here is never let a person named Ganya rap. In Rocky IV, Rocky Balboa was an American hero who went to the Soviet Union on Christmas for no money and got revenge on Ivan Drago and even turned the crowd against the Russian superstar and in favor of him and may have ended the Cold War. And another American hero of the 1980s, Sergeant Slaughter, is here in action taking on Bob Owen. And at this time, he is actually a champion in the AWA. He's the AWA America's champion, which you think, oh, maybe something like an intercontinental belt. And there's not much to that title. I mean, I've talked enough about Sergeant Slaughter, so I kind of want to talk about the AWA America's championship because it has a very hysterical Wikipedia page. The belt was founded in 1985. The first champion was Larry Zbysko, and eventually he would lose it later in 85 to Sergeant Slaughter. And that's it. The the belt would go away when Sergeant Slaughter would abruptly leave the AWA later in 1986. So Slaughter, you think of him, oh, he goes in, eventually ends up in the AWA. They end up on ESPN just because of his name and prestige and all that. But he actually did come and go because he had the GI Joe deal and he didn't have to he didn't have to you know, try and make money by wrestling in the AWA really but back to the Americas championship there are two champions in the history of this belt but whoever designed this wikipedia page i want to thank them because first of all they list who the oldest and the youngest champions are there are two champions and then they list the heaviest and the lightest champion 
to remind us that, yes, in fact, Sergeant Slaughter is heavier than Larry Zbysko. It's really just hilarious. Yes, August 1986, the belt goes away along with Slaughter. And, of course, he would reemerge in the AWA later on. There actually is a mildly interesting moment on commentary here. The big Sarge himself. And if everyone ever looked like a Marine Corps sergeant, he's the guy that does. And I was in the Marine Corps. I was in the Army. None of my drill instructors were that big, I'll tell you right now. And I want to use that to make a point, because I've gotten the question, how long does it take you to put together a show on a weekly basis? I've been asked that, and... I, I try to think about it from time to time. I say usually six to eight hours or something like that. It might be less and it might be more on some weeks where I have to do a lot more research. Now, there are certain things that are time sucks for me, like trying to investigate Larry Nelson's military service. There's really no point in me doing that. It's just in hopes of maybe turning up something or maybe trying to catch him in a lie. I know on a wrestling program, I'm, exagger- I'm checking for exaggerations and checking the veracity of his claims. But, you know, stolen valor can be a problem in today's society. It's where people claim to have won a Purple Heart when, in fact, you know, they did not or something like that. It is a problem. However, I am willing to allow it in certain situations, not necessarily in a wrestling context, but something like if a guy who is 94 years old, and I think I saw something about this on the news recently, you know, exaggerates a little what he was doing in World War II, I'm willing to allow something like that because the guy lived to 94 and at least did serve somewhat in World War II and there's not many living World War II veterans at this point so I'm kind of willing to just sort of let that go like if you served in Korea and you claimed to be a drill sergeant but you were actually a mailman or something like that that's fine I mean just tell interesting stories to you know your your relatives or whatever it 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 really doesn't harm too much but if you're gonna say it about like Iraq or whatever, it starts to become a little bit different. Anyway, back to back to Slaughter. I looked up his AWA results, and I don't really find any after May of '86. So this is very late. But he does the title, the America's title, is not retired until August, and he scaled back working, which was his right. Because if you can make money and not put your body through stuff, you you might as well. I wish I could. I wish I could make money just you know, <laughs> not driving 40 miles each way to work each day, but I'm sorry, that's the way it is. And he's got some chain wrestling very early on, and I think he's putting out for Vern. I'm not entirely sure why, maybe because he's sitting there at ringside. What Indian Deathlock by Slaughter? It's very interesting what he's doing here. Vern takes the opportunity to congratulate Dan Gable and the University of Iowa for winning the NCAA Wrestling Championship. I don't know much about that, and I didn't even bother to check because why would Vern lie about any of that? Slaughter hits a drop kick because it's mandated in the AWA Constitution that all baby faces must hit at least one drop kick in a match. No matter how big, small, or whatever they are, he has to do it. And he goes up to the second rope and hits a clothesline, which ends up picking up the win. So no Cobra Clutch or anything like that. A little bit blah. He's got his money. 
you know, he he can go home and relax or whatever, wait for that call from the WWF, or as the story goes, he called them shortly after WrestleMania six and said, I want to come back to work. But his value to the AWA was his name got them on ESPN, which is certainly one of the great what ifs in history, as in what if another promotion had gotten on ESPN, say, not so much Crockett, because I don't think they were really involved in that, but Mid-South is the one I'm thinking about because I think that they could have done the best with it considering that the talent they had on hand. Two matches inside the cage, countless titles on the line. And Sherry Martell, for your men, the playboy and the pretty boy, perhaps the toughest test because they have former WWF champions. Wait, 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 former. They came in former, and my dear babies, they're going to leave former. Am I not right? It's rather interesting to see Sherry without all the crazy makeup and all the histrionics and all that that you'd see in the WWF later on. I don't like how she ends the promo with, am I not right? Because it kind of confuses people in their own mind. Like, you know, when we are freshmen in high school, when my friend Jim would ask somebody if he is not, 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 not gay to make them try and figure out, oh, how many knots were in there. It's always very annoying and also something that doesn't hold up over time because it's rather homophobic. Buddy Rose does all the talking from that point. Uh, Doug Summers is just kind of hanging out in the background. Not really too much there because I want to spend more time. Get the great Nick Bockwinkle here. and He's got a match against Larry Zbysko coming up at that Meadowland show. And you know, we just saw Bach be the best rapper out of everybody in the AWA. There's certainly no limits to what he could do. He brings a whip into the <laughs> picture with him, talking about how he's basically going to kick Zabisco's ass, but not, of course, in that kind of language, because Nick Bockwinkle you know, always knew the right words to use who's effective for him as a heel and as a baby face it just makes him sound way more intelligent but damn it feels good to be a gangster Larry Zbysko I'll bring my little whip you bring your nunchucks and you know what I'll do with this and your nunchucks you know where I'll put them well, they have nothing to do with the match so they can go off to the side what it's going to be is you and I and balls don't count Mr. Zbysko it doesn't make any difference how articulate wrestlers we have been in the past this is not going to be wrestling. This is going to be me trying to take your head off and vice versa. And whether somebody gets pinned or disqualified or counted out, there's 30 seconds. And the man who can't get back to his feet, he loses. And I intend to maybe even get disqualified two or three times. I could care less. You have made me, you have impassioned me to shed the sophisticated clothing and get myself down and dirty and earthy as can be. And I'm starting to like it. I'm starting to get off on it. And I'm going to do one hell of a job. And I'm going to beat you. And then I'll leave you wherever you'd like to be. I don't care. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Bockwinkle even rhymed a couple of times there. Although I could have done without the part at the end where he talks about how he's getting off on it. There's something about 51-year-old men. I really don't want to know what gets them off. For 
For the final bout, we have the tag team champions, Scott Hall and Kurt Henning, and they are taking on the Alaskans, who are not to be confused with the more successful Alaskans of the 1970s, which is Jay York and Mike York. This is actually Rick Renslow and Dave Wagner, who you might know from such enhancement jobs as late 80s WWF. Scott Hall and Kurt Henning here. Henning's credentials in the AWA have been gone over quite a bit. It's the proper way to really sort of build him up, making him a tag champ, putting him with a big guy, and having him with... I I like tag teams with a big guy and then a... Not so much a smaller technical wrestler, but, you know, somebody the size of Henning, I, I feel like that's a very good pairing. But just when they get to Henning as the top guy, things have just slid so far downward with Super Clash 3 in San Francisco, or Super Clash 2. I always think that's Super Clash 3, but then I have to remember that that's the Kerry Von Erich versus Jerry Lawler one. And by the time Henning got the belt, things were just too far gone. But Scott Hall, it's very interesting to see him at this point in time, still very early in his career. And 1986 would actually have another glimpse of Scott Hall's later career as he would have matches later in the year with Larry Zabisco. That was a big part of the NWO feud and Larry going at it with Scott Hall. I believe it was Super Brawl 8 where they had their match. I, I always remember it as Starcade, but then I have to remember, oh yeah, that's Eric Bischoff and that just complete waste of time, that thing versus Larry Z. The way Hall and Henning lost the tag team titles, I, I hope you're sitting down when I tell you this, that it was a complete screw job finish, which I know for the AWA, I can't believe it. In this case, Hall and Henning are defending the titles against Buddy Rose and Doug Summers. And Colonel De Beers comes down. Scott Hall gets distracted. He gets pulled onto the apron, is sent headfirst into the ring post, which is an illegal move in the AWA. He's bleeding everywhere, and he gets counted out of the ring, and that's how they change the title on a count out. Like, literally, this is how you end up eventually going out of business, is stupid shit like that. Anyway, Kurt starts off the match with a little bit of chain wrestling amateur stuff, mainly to please Vern, to get the tumescence monitor moving a little bit. And I'm just wondering, when is the drop kick coming from Henning? Because I know he can do one, and I know he does an outstanding, standing drop kick. A blind tag to Scott Hall, who gets a big clothesline. I always like when Scott Hall was referred to as just Big Scott Hall. I don't know. I don't know. Big John Stud. It's got very simple adjectives from past for gimmicks at one point in time. Henning is referred to as a fine football player by Larry Nelson, who literally does not know. Like he doesn't know what he doesn't know because. Kurt Henning is a man who threw a 90-yard pass to himself in a vignette, and I don't know if they use trick photography, but I'm going to assume that they were on the level on a wrestling show. When has a wrestling vignette ever lied to me? Hall ends up whipping the guy. I I don't even care about keeping the Alaskans apart. They're introduced as Alaskans 1 and 2, but yet they're not masked. Kind of a strange thing. At Hall, this is actually Hall and Henning's finisher, it seems. Hall sends an Irish whip towards the corner, and Henning hits a drop kick off the second rope. So there's your drop kick right there. That picks up the win. At least it's a cool double-team move in the very stodgy AWA. 
I mean, sure, I guess, you know, the Midnight Rockers are there too. But Kurt Henning and Scott Hall, I think, could hold their own with them. Actually, it was a rolling cradle that <laughs> Henning used for the pin. He didn't just, like, get down and hook the guy's leg or whatever. So a win to close out the wrestling portion of the program for the tag team champions. One of them, one fall to a finish, a special challenge match. The American Dream, Dusty Rhodes with Baby Doll. We'll take on this man right here, the world television champion, Arn Anderson. When you pick an AWA show, there are certain things that you have to expect. A drop kick in every match and a chicken in every pot. Something something like that, I think. But sometimes you get a little extra treat, especially when it turns out to be a promotion for a Pro Wrestling USA show at the Meadowlands, as we've had all throughout this show. And the proverbial pot of gold at the end of this rainbow of sitting through these AWA enhancement matches is an Arn Anderson promo as he's taking on Dusty Rhodes in the cage in the Meadowlands. This is not about the world television title, so I'm going to put it aside. Dusty Rhodes, I never claimed in my life to have the gift of gab that you do. I never claimed to have the charisma that you do. I never even claimed to have the wealth or be the sports attraction that you are. But the one thing I do claim, and the one thing is inbred into me, is the fact that I'm an Anderson. And when you're an Anderson, that means you've got guts, you've got heart, you've got incentive to go and get what you want. If it means taking a few measures that aren't particularly agreed with by the promotion or looked up to by the people. I found out one thing, Dusty Rhodes, in this life. The quickest way to downfall is to take public opinion and to put it above what you want. And the quickest and shortest route to success is take public opinion and flush it down the commode where it belongs. We're coming to the most violent part of the country the most violent part of the world to have the most violent match ever constructed, a cage match. And while you've got that voyeur, baby doll, sitting there with a direct pretension of seeing you scrub my face into this cage, I'm going to warn you one thing, Dusty Rhodes. I was part of breaking your leg one time, and the Meadowlands is just as good a place to do it again. We all know the Arn Anderson Greatest Hits album of spine busters and whatnot over the years, but one of the pleasures of doing this show and just of watching all these different weekly television shows on YouTube or wherever you might find it on the network, all the old World Championship Wrestling shows on Saturday, is just week-to-week Arn Anderson promos like this. It's just amazing stuff. I think it should be required viewing and listening for anybody who is in professional wrestling today. I know Arn is an agent in WWE and has been for quite some time. I just wish that there was a single person in WWE right now who is as good of a promo as Arn Anderson was on maybe not even his best day, but Arn Anderson's 700th best day of his career. I would accept something like that. And Arn does make a very good point there about public opinion. And you have to throw it out the window to maybe do what's best for either yourself 
or your company or whatever. I mean, this this is the place. I live in Massachusetts. This is the, this is the place where we outlawed leg animal traps some 20 years ago. And now I go out my house the other day and I see two damn turkeys roaming around in the side yard. Well, I mean, not like I would have set up leg traps anyway, but I'm certainly going to point the finger at that stupid thing because I see coyotes everywhere. Turkeys are all over the place. And as I said in an earlier episode, I think it was the gobbledygooker one, where I was kind of defending the notion of having a mask on. Turkeys are assholes. And they don't really care uh, uh, if you are trying to be nice to them and humane. They will attack you. So anyway, yes, Arn Anderson is awesome. And believe it or not, that is how they rap on AWA All-Star Wrestling for April 6th, 1986. But first, let's do a really quick edition of YouTube Comment Theater. As there are a few comments on this particular video that has been up for not all that long only about six months or so, it seems. So we'll start out with Bobby Funderburk says, WOR-TV Channel 9 in NYC. Yes, Channel 9 is technically a New Jersey television station, but they did not leave in any of the station identification stuff at the top that, <laughs> that I had mentioned that I love so much, either last week or the week before. And, uh, and stuff like that just always amuses me, the little bumpers and whatnot. Mr. T-Bone says, Tony Schiavone appearing on AWA television. Yep, as, as, as I said, it is kind of a weird thing to see. But again, Pro Wrestling USA leading up to the last show they, they would ever have, at least on record, at the Meadowlands on April 28th. And then somebody thanks the uploader, and the uploader replies, You're welcome. These AWA shows were a hassle because they were on a scratch DVD. Glad I could upload them. I don't even think of DVDs as being a problem video-wise, but I guess they can get scratched. I always think more of scratched CDs because that's happened way more in my existence. None of the movies or anything that I have on DVD has ever gotten damaged Maybe a Simpsons DVD I had a long time ago. I don't really remember. Finally, Heard says, Baby Bull. It's in reference to Vader, Leon White, that we see on the show, obviously, earlier. Other athletes nicknamed the Baby Bull. For some reason, I remember Dar- Danny Tartable being nicknamed that, but apparently that was mistaken. The real Baby Bull in Major League Baseball history is Orlando Cepeda, who played from the late 50s to the mid-70s, was the first designated hitter for the Boston Red Sox. And Willen Rosario, who played for the Colorado Rockies earlier in this decade, to much less success than Orlando Cepeda had in his career. That'll do it for YouTube Comment Theater. Now for next week's show... I had an original idea, which was to go back to an episode of WCW Prime, but then I looked on YouTube, where I'd like to I like to do stuff that's on YouTube for more, because there's more public consumption of it, and people can more readily go and watch it either on their TV or on their phone or on their iPad or whatever. Unfortunately, there's not a single full WCW Prime episode on YouTube at this time, so i just scratch my head and move on. And what I've decided to do is I'm going to do an episode blind that I hadn't noticed before. I think it might be a more recent upload. 
It is a WCW show from 1995, and this would be WCW main event from April 2nd, 1995. And on this show, Ric Flair has a very peculiar role where he almost comes off like a politician who is running an extended political ad. That certainly is going to be interesting to look at. But the number one reason why I would choose that show is it has one of the vignettes where William Regal, Lord Stephen Regal, whatever you'd like to call him, just call him great, just call him an icon, just call him legendary, is trying to <laughs> make Bobby Eaton, you know, a earl, as it were, to try and bring him up into the upper crust of society. And hilarity most definitely ensues. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave feedback for both the Pro Wrestling Only feed and for my own feed on iTunes or wherever else you might rate podcasts. And and spread the word. Tell a friend. Tell two friends. That would certainly be helpful. And just a reminder that turkeys are assholes. And tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. This is the end!